From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, masks as artifacts. The state archaeologist has been thinking a lot about how masks will become a symbol of this time. We see them everywhere, not just on people, but we see them on the ground. We see them hanging off of rearview mirrors. As Colorado approaches a year of COVID, we'll reflect on masks, how they've even become identity. Plus, a businesswoman who opened a Colorado Springs boutique during the pandemic, what it's taught her beyond the bottom line. And it took a century for CU Boulder to recognize the graduation of Lucille Berkeley Buchanan. A young white female student came up to her and says, Hi, Lucy, here's your diploma. I'll be your stand-in. And she never walked. Now a building on campus is being renamed for her. Support staying informed and help your fellow Coloradans at the same time. Right now, when you become a new member or add to your monthly giving, you'll provide a week's worth of groceries to a Colorado family. Thanks to a generous partnership with the Singer Family Foundation and five food banks across our state. Stay informed, stay connected. You make it possible at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's nearly a year into the pandemic, and it's likely that masks will become an enduring symbol of this time. Artifacts, even. Early on, the advice for everyday folks was not to wear a mask, or only to wear one if you were sick. But on April 3rd, 2020, Governor Jared Polis, following CDC recommendations, made this announcement. It almost sounds quaint now. Here's the big change that we are implementing today. Uh, We're asking all Coloradans to wear face coverings when they go out of the house for any of your essential functions, like grocery shopping or other functions. I'll show you how this looks. He donned a cloth mask with the state logo all over it. Now, to model behavior, if I had gotten home from the grocery store, I would now, this would go into the wash. Earlier, I used the term artifact. I did that on purpose because it's how the state archaeologist, Holly Norton, thinks of masks. And I feel that masks are so ubiquitous. You know, we all have to wear them. I have a pile of masks by my front door right now for my family. We see them everywhere, not just on people, but we see them on the ground. We see them hanging off of rearview mirrors. So I really feel like despite the fact that, you know, masks have been around for quite a while, Uh, that they're really emblematic of 2020. And I think that when we look back or when we tell, you know, people in the future, masks are going to be one of the first really visible symbols of this time period that we're going to bring up. Would I expect you as state archaeologist to collect masks for future generations? Like, are you stockpiling things as examples of this time? You know, as the state archaeologist, I'm not, but at History Colorado, they are. So our curators, as soon as COVID became this shared experience last March, they started um, COVID collecting. So at the beginning of COVID, if you remember, we were actually told not to use masks and they weren't that helpful. Yeah, I remember that. Switched really fast in like April or May-ish. And we actually had a mask making effort at History Colorado to make sure all of our 
staff and our volunteers were adequately protected when they came in. And I actually helped with that effort. And so one of the things that I've saved for COVID collecting are my patterns that I use to make masks and some of the directions. So I think our collectors probably won't want to see masks, but when this is all over, I'm going to hand them just a pile. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose this is more anthropological or sociological than archaeological, but I think it'll be quite interesting to see if mask culture persists past the pandemic, uh, whether there's enough awareness around the spreading of the cold or the flu, or we like how warm our faces are in the winter. Is that a question you've considered, Holly? It is a question that I've considered, and I've, I've thought about it in my personal life. This summer with the fires, it was very convenient to already have masks. And actually, we like to bicycle in our household and in our family. And I've noted that our consumption of bugs has gone down incredibly <laughs> with the use of masks doing that. But, you know, I hope that masks become another tool that we use in, you know, public health and hygiene. Um, I was looking at some of the statistics recently about the flu. And apparently, like, usually we have 400,000 hospitalizations from the flu, and we're at 165 this year. I think it would be great if we didn't just completely get rid of masks when COVID is over, whatever that might mean, and um, continue using them in our daily lives. Chris, part of this story as well, for future generations, is the resistance to masks. It's amazing how this simple piece of cloth has really become kind of a political symbol. So I think about like Saturday Night Live. We were watching that a couple weeks ago. Okay. And the cast went the entire show without wearing masks because they were acting. But then at the end, they're all wearing masks when they're on that stage. Have a good night, everybody. And I, I have to imagine that any damage that could have been done from people spreading germs to each other had already happened in the preceding hour and a half, right? And so what they're doing is they're signaling to their audience and to other folks about themselves and about their political viewpoints and about, you know, everything that, you know, we're wearing masks. This is who we are and we're doing it in this situation, even though it doesn't actually in that situation give them any sort of of protection. You wrote a piece for History Colorado. It's part of a series where you imagine explaining this moment to people a hundred years from now, a century from now. What did you imagine? Yeah, it's actually set in the field and there's an archaeological dig. It's an excavation with a future state archaeologist and her co-PI, who is a tribal archaeologist. And they've got a bunch of kids and they're looking at this blue medical mask that they found in the soil. Like the ones Um, we're seeing everywhere these days, the disposable ones. Exactly. And we're going to find those. Um, They're already probably part of the archaeological record in some places. Although please pick them up and clean. They're not archaeology yet. They're still litter. (laughs) (laughs) They're not archaeology yet. They're still litter. My favorite line. Okay. Thanks. You know, but what I was imagining was people in the future who socially were different, not just from the pandemic, but from everything that's happened this year, from 
some of the um, social movements related to, you know, Black Lives Matter. And I imagined um, kids who had to live in a different world. You know, our climate has changed. It'll continue to change for the next hundred years. We experienced that this summer with the fires. And they are going to have to face those changes, both good and bad. And some of those changes will be more pandemics, more illness, or a different understanding of pandemics and illness and how maybe technology and other factors um, will help protect them in the future, hopefully in better ways than, than we're protecting ourselves today. Well, Holly, thank you so much for being with us. What mask will you be wearing if you go out today, do you think? If I go out today for, uh, you know, to walk my dog or something like that, this is the first mask I ever made. And it's got bees on it because um, I'm a beekeeper and I enjoy them very much. And so that'll be what I'm wearing. Holly Norton is Colorado's state archaeologist, and she wrote a piece for History Colorado about masks as a symbol of this time for future generations. We spoke as Colorado marks almost a year of the pandemic. Norton mentioned how often she sees masks littering her community. I started a Twitter account to document this. Your photos are welcome at Forlorn PPE. That's at Forlorn PPE on Twitter. Still to come, we check back in with a small business owner who opened a boutique mid-pandemic. It's taught her about a lot more than retail. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. And you listened. Really blown away by Back From Broken. Back From Broken inspired me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The city of Colorado Springs is expanding its grant program to help small businesses survive the COVID economic downturn. The money comes from the Federal CARES Act. For Rebecca Moon, who opened a clothing boutique in downtown Colorado Springs last year, the pandemic has brought both anxiety and opportunity. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce checks back in with Moon. The COVID-19 pandemic changed a lot of things about how businesses work. Many shut their doors, though here in downtown, more stores actually opened than closed last year. And there's a we're all in this together vibe going on. It's what brought Rebecca Moon together with Brooke Nicholas. Well, I'm pretty sure my mom introduced me to Brooke because she wanted Brooke to help her convince me not to get any tattoos. Rebecca's a fashion designer and custom seamstress, and we've been following her tiny boutique clothing store since she opened last May in the thick of the pandemic. And here is Brooke Nicholas. <laughs> I do not recall that conversation. Oh, well, it, it wasn't very impactful on her either because she ended up getting the tattoos. <laughs> Rebecca's tattoos are very tasteful. Black outlines of flowers and feathers on her arm kind of thing. Back to Brooke. She and her husband, Bobby, just opened this crazily different hotel concept a few blocks away from Rebecca's boutique. It's called Kinship Landing. Each of the 41 rooms is unique, from king suites to hostel-style bunk rooms. And Brooke says that means... Each curtain just had to be adjusted in every room, just depending on where the actual 
brackets ended up and that kind of thing. Big custom sewing job. Brooke knew just where to turn. Rebecca Moon. Working with silk is like working with water. And working with this is like working with wood. Rebecca pushes the thick polyester curtains through her sewing machine. One by one, it's kind of meditative, sometimes kind of boring. Often I am thinking about other projects, or I am thinking about dinner a lot. (laughs) Rebecca says she has dozens of these curtains to hem. Each will support her business through the pandemic. This is not the first time she's been buoyed by big contracts from other downtown businesses. Shortly after she opened, she sewed 300 cloth face masks for a bunch of local restaurants, relying on her connections from a lifetime in this city. In the nine months since Moonbeam Clothiers opened, Rebecca has added a lot to her carefully curated inventory, and business has increased. I'm noticing a good trend. Holidays were really good, and I'm getting more, like, repeat customers, people who say they've been following me on social media for a while and are finally getting a chance to come in. Her alterations business has been picking up as well, and for now it's good news. Yet all that is still barely enough to tread water and help her business stay in the black. Her money from those additional sales is going toward buying that more robust inventory. The pandemic is frustrating for many reasons, but for a budding entrepreneur, there's extra uncertainty. Rebecca says she doesn't know how to adjust her business model to the fluctuating conditions, whether she'll be open or not, or how much money to spend on new additions to her boutique. I'm very much a planner, a 10-year plan kind of person, and... It's just impossible to do that. On one side, everything is constantly changing. In other ways, it's constant deja vu. I spoke to her last June as she finally was going back to her second job as a bartender. The bar had just been allowed to reopen. It closed again after. Now, in February... Going back to work there tomorrow, actually. Her second first time back. It's funny, my boss posted a screenshot from Groundhog Day the other day that was like, we're reopening again. (laughs) She's adapting now. She's learning how to set up mental boundaries, how to leave her work at work, how to be okay not knowing if she's always making the right moves. Yeah, I still don't really know, but you kind of just have to like put yourself first and see if it works out. Rebecca Moon takes solace in the steady work, sewing curtain after heavy curtain in the hope that her hard work will one day pay off, even if that's after the pandemic ends. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. The University of Colorado Boulder will rename a building for a remarkable graduate who's only recently begun getting her due. Lucille Berkeley Buchanan-Jones was the daughter of freed slaves, the first black graduate of what's now the University of Northern Colorado and the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. Despite her achievements, she was buried in an unmarked grave. That did not sit well with Polly Bugros McLean, a professor at CU, who set out to write her biography. And Polly, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. You spent years crisscrossing the country to learn everything you could about this woman who lived to 105. Why were you so captivated by Lucille? 
it started off with an article from a newspaper that said that a black woman who was educated, a daughter of the state of Colorado, was buried in an Omar grave, as you said. And I went, no, that's not correct in the, you know, as we're coming to the end of the 20th century. It has to be a mistake here. And that started me on, on the quest. And the first thing I did was went, go to Fairmont Cemetery, where she was buried. In Denver. In Denver. And looked her up and also looked up the fact that she had also bought in uh, 1955, she bought her tombstone. She bought a spot to be buried. And uh, she bought a headstone, and that was destroyed. And she lost that. You know, two years before she died, they would sell her plot. And you wanted really to understand the yeah. story of her life, uh, not just her death, and um, the fact that she really was not well known. She was not well known, and that what happens uh, to history often is that we tend to focus on those who make the nightly news, those who have, uh, who, who we don't tell the full story of those who are the bottom of the historical plane. And I wanted to resurrect her and bring her out. As I mentioned, there are a lot of firsts in Lucille's life. So the, this first generation born after slavery Again, the first black graduate of what's now UNC, the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. And yet I understand that you struggle with the term first. I did. Uh, that there's a lot that word doesn't capture. What do you mean? First to begin with, first has some both negative and positive connotations. Okay. You know, the first world war that we've had, what, how many people suffered and died. You know, you might say certain things came out as a result. But that first category really did bother me. And it often shuts down further research. Once you've got your first, I mean, why go any further? Ah, why uh, look at all of the folks who paved the way to make that first possible? And, I think and they get lost in the annals of history. You know, the dustbins of history, as we call it. And that's what really triggered all of this. And yet there is some positivity as well associated with firsts. And there were some important firsts in Lucille's life. Yeah, it was. Um, She majored in German, the first African-American woman at the University of Colorado to major in German, which was quite impressive at that time. Why Quite important. The black intelligentsia prior to World War I, really had a great feeling and compassion for Germany. And apparently Germany related to them in ways that were not clear or understood by others. So they went there to school. They studied in German. Du Bois was her idol. And he spent two years in Germany. As in W.E.B. W.E.B. Du Bois, Uh yeah. So the German became a real important, and the historically black colleges and universities in the United States, um, those that offered degrees and, you know, not just technical skills, all had German departments. And today there are two that still have German in uh, their, their curriculum. Now, she wanted to teach, but she could not land a teaching gig in Colorado after her graduation from what is now UNC. Why not? Well, one of the things is that you got a free education and you had to pay back. So immediately she wanted to get a job. And the only job that she apparently could apply for was in Maitland, Colorado. 
Maitland. Maitland, Colorado. Where mining is that? town about 163 miles away from here. Okay. Uh, she applied. In fact, the Maitland newspaper ran an article in 1905 about this very intellectual and bright black student that graduated from, which is now UNC. The teacher's college. That's right. Would be applying for a job. Uh, <laughs> but it never happened. And she didn't waste any time. And that was one of her characteristics. She didn't take no for an answer. So immediately she found a job at Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock and ended up going there right after graduation. Is it that she just found it difficult as a black woman to find a teaching gig in Colorado? Yes, because we would not. Uh, that that was certainly a problem, even though we did have some black teachers before 1905. Huh. That was the, the only system. community in Colorado, though, that would even think about offering her a job. Yeah, Denver, for instance, would not. No, she could not get in anywhere else. So, and then they turned her down. They turned her down. Yeah. And then Colorado loses her for That's a right. time to Arkansas. For, for Yeah, they lose her for about 42 years. Now, at CU Boulder, later on, she apparently did not walk at graduation. Right. Why not? Uh, I interviewed... Um, one of her relatives that was still alive, and I was told that a young white female student came up to her and says, Hi, Lucy, here's your diploma. I'll be your stand-in. And um, she never walked. Do you think that was about race? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it, it's hard to document some of this at this time other than the oral history that I've received from relatives about this. Polly, I want to make it clear that this story is about so much more than just Lucille, because your book opened my eyes to the years just after emancipation. I mean, I have to admit, I was naive to the difficulties uh, that freed slaves faced, like Lucille's parents. Absolutely. Let me just read an excerpt from your book. Slaves' optimistic dreams were met with frightening realities. Freed blacks were often homeless, with few possessions, often unable to find work, and thus unable to purchase sufficient food. Then diseases such as smallpox, against which they had no immunity and access to treatment, took their toll. Many people became dependent on the federal government for survival. In the face of all this, many emancipated slaves returned to the only secure place they had ever known. Meaning their masters. Yes. Meaning those plantations. And some plantations disappeared and others uh, still survived a little bit and you got a job there or you got a job from someone who bought the land nearby. But remember, while chattel slavery ended, they were still enslaved through the the system of sharecropping. Mm -hmm. That was another form of slavery. They had to do certain things. They had to give certain things away. So... You have to understand that slavery didn't really end. It just continued in another shape, another form. My goodness, that must have been such a painful reckoning for someone who thought of themselves as newly free. Yeah, it was. To in fact not be. But I suppose Lucille's parents, they were able to persevere. Yeah, and I think that they represent an amazing generation because they would become the middle class when they come to Colorado. It didn't take Lucille's family a long time, about 10 years before they were achieving middle class status and had earned certain rights in the state. Remarkable, though, given the odds against them, stacked against them. 
Lucille's grandfather, I think on her mother's side, was a white slave owner. Yes. A testament to the fact that slaves weren't just there for labor, but often to satisfy the sexual desires of their owners. And I think this meant that Lucille had fair skin. You learned that later in life, Lucille professed a dislike of black people, of darker people. Yeah, that that was her trick bag. Uh, (laughs) uh, She was in a situation where she wanted to get out. She was in a nursing home. In a nursing home. She was removed from her home that her father built in the 1890s, which she lived in when she came back to Colorado in uh, the uh, 1949. And they didn't know she had arrangements that she had set forward her life. She had hired a white male to take her shopping, um, to take her to the doctor, uh, to do odd jobs around the house, cut the lawn, cut the trees, do all the work. Uh, she was like the reversal of driving Miss Daisy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the situation she lived under. And occasionally she would call the fire department when she heard a noise. But there was a reason for it because the kids next door were very no- lo- noisy. And as a result, that threw her off. So you think that this was a tool she used yes. to try to get out of the nursing home. But do you think as well that she had internalized some of the racism that she might have faced? I don't think so. Um, I don't read it that way. And the people that I interviewed that knew her didn't read it that way either. One of the things to recognize is that she was very much the other. I mean, I, I, let me back up. The reason I also went into this was that her middle name was Berkeley. And I couldn't understand why would an emancipated slave family give a surname to their firstborn daughter in Colorado in 1884. That led me to figure out Berkeley. Where's Berkeley? Plantation, Edmund Berkeley, father of her mother. And uh, found a fantastic letter that the mother wrote to her father. You never got to meet Lucille. She died in 1989. Right. And I'm always interested in the kind of relationship that develops between an author and the subject of a book who's deceased. I mean, how would you describe the connection that you feel to Lucille? Um, I think the, uh, the connection is that I see myself in Lucille with the issues that she faced. She faced issues of racism no matter what, wherever she traveled. Um, and that was back over 100 years ago. You know, and today, some of those same issues arise with me. So there was that connection. We haven't gotten over racism in this country. It's still part of the American character. So I, I saw that. I saw the issues that she faced, you know, in schools in terms of being sexism that she faced as a woman and a black woman. So she was double jeopardy. Um, and that indeed sort of made me think about myself a lot as I was going through this. As a woman of color. As a, a woman of color, yeah. On a college campus. Yeah. Uh, you did meet with the white side of Lucille's family. Yes. How was that? I mean, confronting the reality that their slave owner relative ha- had also sexually abused his slaves. Well, the first time I met with one, it was in a library. And she was related uh, through, um, again, marriage. And I said to her, excuse me, ma'am, but 
I'm doing this book and here's the situation. And she says, oh, no, 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 that's absolutely wrong. You're absolutely incorrect. And then a white male standing nearby said, come now, Tiki, you know that they used to go with the slaves. Um, and that sort of softened her. And she invited me to her home, became my friend, sent me letters that she had. So it was that kind of thing. The last time I met with one was on the plantation of itself when I brought all the evidence to show the, to show the great, great, great granddaughter of Edmund Berkeley, the black side of her family. How'd that go? She never said she disagreed, but she never said she didn't. Oh. And it was a fantastic meeting on a plantation. A final question. We have about 30 seconds remaining. Is Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones's grave at Denver's Fairmont Cemetery still unmarked? It's marked now with her name. Okay. Yes. That is Polly Bugros McLean from a conversation in November 2018. She's an associate professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Her book is Remembering Lucille a Virginia family's rise from slavery and a legacy forged a mile high. CU is renaming a building on campus in Buchanan's honor. It's also renaming a building after Professor Albert Ramirez and Vera Ramirez, who advocated for underrepresented students. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, reminding you that you're part of the team that makes Colorado Matters possible as well, with your support at CPR.org. This is CPR News.